0: Okay, we're working through the book of Romans, just to let everybody know, and um, we've reached a certain point. Now, actually we've got up to Romans 2.16, but I'm just going to begin reading. I don't want to be too long a reading from Romans 3, verse 1. And this is Paul basically addressing the Jews. He's been talking about sin and its impact and the fact that we're all under sin, and now he applies this particularly to the Jews And he he comes here and says in verse 1, What advantage then is there being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone may argue If my faithfulness enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Let's just come and pray. And Father, again, we just pray for your help, for your enabling, as we seek just to open up your word to understand it, And just to see its relevance and its application for our lives. Lord, we know we need your help because humanly this is beyond us. So be with us, bless us and speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm pretty sure if we today were to go into the streets around and do some kind of street interview... Asking people, say something along the lines of, how do you see the world today? And how do you see your life in particular today? Well, apart from the fact that almost everyone would say, I'm sick and tired of Brexit, we all know that. Then I think following on from that, that the vast majority of answers that we would get fed back would reveal that the people feel that there's something fundamentally wrong. There's something seriously amiss out there in the world in general and also in their own personal life. Worldwide, people would probably point to the never-ending cycle of war that we seem to be locked into or to the pattern of crime and violence that increasingly seems to be just part of day-to-day life as we experience it. And then, of course, there is climate change. The increasing number, people say, of so-called natural disasters with prophecies of a final and terrible doom coming if we don't change our way. People look at things like these and other things and so come to the conclusion, and, and rightly so, in my personal opinion, that there's something seriously wrong with our world. But, you know, it doesn't stop there, does it? It doesn't stop. Many of us look into our own lives, we look into our own hearts, and we know that there's something wrong, that there's something amiss, that there's something lacking deep within us. And we maybe have a happy life. We maybe have in abundance what this world around tells us. We need to be happy physically, materially, socially, emotionally. We've got it all. But we know, though at times we maybe try to hide from this behind all that we have, But we know, we sense deep within ourselves that there is something wrong, that there's something lacking deep within. We know the facts are that there is something wrong with our world. And there is something wrong within us. And Paul, in these early chapters of Romans, has told us exactly what is wrong. That is the problem is that we have sinned, that we have turned away from God and that sin has caused a breakdown in our relationship with God has left us now under the judgment of God with only his final judgment and condemnation left to come. That in these early chapters of Romans up to Romans 2.16, Paul has argued and demonstrated this to be the case for the obviously immoral pagan and also for the good living, the morally upright person, whether Jew or Gentile. But in Romans 2, from verse 17 on, he turns his attention here solely to the Jews. And what basically he does in the latter part of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3, is he sets up the arguments of the religious Jew. The facts that they felt lifted them above the common mass of humanity to put them into a special bracket in terms of their relationship with God. And then what Paul does is he demolishes these arguments one by one. And in a moment or two, I'm going to try and summarize what Paul says here, just try and pick out the, the key points in his argument, and then we're going to focus on Paul's conclusion in Romans 3. What Paul has to say there about the power that sin has, the place that sin has, and the impact that sin has on our lives. But before we we go into all that, let me just say that it can be really easy at times, can't it? To maybe listen to sermons like this, sermons outlining the, the faults and failings of first century Jews, and to feel nice and safe and secure for once pointing the finger at them, because we say this can't possibly have anything to do with us, surely. This can't possibly be applicable, be relevant in any way to us. I would say don't be so sure. For you see, the key factor with regard to the Jews is that they had lost sight of the fact that at the heart of their faith lay grace. That is the love of God that they could never earn, merit, or deserve. They've lost sight of that and of the fact that, that all the different laws and all the various distinctives that God gave to them, they were given to them once by faith they put their trust in the grace of God. They were given to them in order to help them to walk in the kind of holiness and love that lies at the heart of who God himself is and must therefore be at the center of the life of any people who claim to follow him. But you see, they lost sight of this. And so these laws and these distinctives that were given by God, the kind of boundary markers of their faith, became more important to them. In fact, ultimately obscured for them That holiness and love, which is supposed to be the beating heart of the people of God. Now I want to say to you, it is so easy for the same kind of thing to happen to us. And in fact, you know, we can actually choose much less worthy things than the Jews did as our boundary markers. We can come up with our own little set of rules and regulations, our own little set of distinctives that mark us out. And over a time, over a period of time, these things can develop to a point where obedience and conforming to these things, our rules and regulations, can become more important than whether a person has a true faith in Jesus that shows in terms of his love and holiness working their way out in their lives. Now, uh, David Seacom, an Australian writer, he says about this, he says that most religious groups Offer their adherents salvation of some sort. But how do you qualify? Most people feel safe if they belong, believe, and conform. Commitment is often gauged by loyalty above all to certain specifics. We speak of churchianity as opposed to Christianity. Where people make the church, their group, and conform to its particular rules, but perhaps have no heart for God and for his standards of behavior. And here's a real life example that he actually gives of this. Members from Australia, and he says, My cousin tells the story of a Sunday visitor to his animal sanctuary. He was a pastor and insisted that he should not have to pay for entry, since he felt he could not buy anything on the Sabbath. My cousin said that this was fine, but that he would not admit him. A little later, he saw that pastor lifting his children over the fence. Now, do you see what what's going on here? Obviously, that the particular church group that this man was a part of, in fact, that he was a leader in, they emphasized, they elevated to the point of distortion a very literalistic understanding of certain aspects of the Old Testament teaching on the Sabbath. And incidentally, in doing so, in my opinion, failed to get a hold of the key principles behind the Sabbath and then interpret them in a New Testament relevant way. But you see, what this led to here was this man living in a way That was an outright denial of the demands of holiness, of living a righteous life that lie at the heart of the Christian faith. And you see, it's so easy for us to follow in his steps and in the footsteps of the Jews. It's so easy for a church to make up our little rule book, our set of distinctives that we have decided are really what's important in the Christian life and then to focus on these little external things, to apply these things in such a way as to deny the holiness and love that really are the heart of faith. And by so doing, prove Paul's point that we are all sinners. But let's move on to Luke. First, that Paul's argument, the, the argument that he enters into with the, the typical Jewish reaction to the gospel. And this argument begins with the, the Jews saying, if we Jews, like the rest of humanity, as you say, are sinners, separated from God by our sin, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Why did God call us? Why did he mark us out? Why did he give us his laws to make us distinctive? Paul's answer is that there is much value in being a Jew. But it's not in that it gives you some special status. It's not that it gives you some position of security that leads to immunity from the judgment of God. Rather, the value and the glory and blessing in being a Jew lies in the special responsibility given to the Jews in that the word of God, the Old Testament, was given into their care entrusted to them. Then the argument develops a little further with the Jewish this being, but doesn't this though, doesn't it all undermine God's covenant? For God entered into covenant with the Jews. So if we, by our Jewish heritage and because of our obedience to the law, if we on this basis of the covenant that we entered into are not granted salvation, if we, because some have lacked faith, are kept out of heaven, well does that not then make God faithless? Does that that not make him basically into a covenant breaker? Now here in verse 4, Paul's reply to this, is really put in as strong terms as could possibly be imagined. The the NIV translates this. His reply is, not at all, with an exclamation mark. In fact, it's significantly stronger than that. One writer, John Ziesler, suggests that something along the lines of, not on your life, not in a thousand years, would be a more accurate kind of indicator of the flavor of what Paul's trying to say and get across here. For rather, as Paul makes clear, it's not God who's faithless, it's faithless men who've broken their side of the covenant. But God's faithfulness remains unchanged. And as he develops a little bit later in Romans, in Romans 9-11, the truly faithful of Israel will be saved. Yes, those who have got circumcised hearts, that is, those who are ready to trust in God's grace and mercy for salvation, those who hear and then respond to the gospel of mercy and grace and salvation in Christ, they will be saved, as many were in Paul's time with the promise in Romans being of a great turning of the Jews at the end time. The next stage in this argument really relates more to God's righteousness and his glory. And this, this part runs from verse 5 to verse 18 with the, the basic bare bones of what's been said, if I can pick it out here, running along the lines of. But wait a minute, Paul. If our unrighteousness, if our sin brings out in contrast God's righteousness all the more clearly, well, if our sin then in this way makes God look better, brings him glory. Then isn't it unjust of God to condemn us? Shouldn't he, in fact, actually thank us for making him look good in this kind of way? Now, Paul's reply to this is really a mixture of astonishment and outrage. Outrage that these people could deduce this from his teaching. And astonishment. How can people possibly ever say this? Don't they see that this kind of convoluted argument, the idea of God using sin and unrighteousness to make his glory and righteousness shine all the more brightly in contrast, don't they see that the very idea of this, the idea of God using sin in this way, that this is totally opposed to the character of God, totally opposed to the essence of who he is. That is that he is totally good and holy and righteous. So as Paul says in verse 6, if that were so, if what you say were so, how could God judge the world? In fact, as Paul outlines this argument of the Jews, this attempt of theirs to to wriggle out of the fact that like the rest of mankind, they're quite simply sinners in need of a savior. Well, Paul shows Even a degree of embarrassment at sharing the position of his own people. And I think there are certainly hints of that in verse 5 where he, he seems to be compelled to add to what he says. I am using a human argument. That's the main thrust of the argument then that Paul entered into with the Jews. In order to demonstrate to them that they are no different from the rest of mankind. That like us all, they are sinners. Sinners who cannot save themselves by the law, by their own efforts, in any way. That they too are sinners who need a savior. Let's finish now by moving on to look at Paul's conclusion. And this really begins with another question from the Jews in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? To which Paul replies, not at all. Now, We have to say that at first glance, this maybe seems to contradict what Paul said earlier in verse 1. What advantage is there in being a Jew? And he said, much in every way. But what we need to grasp here is that Paul, in these two different instances, is talking about two very different things. In terms of privilege and responsibility, then Jews are at an advantage because God gave them his word. God called them and made them his messengers to take his word to the world. But in terms of favoritism, then the Jews are no better than anyone else. No better. For like the obviously immoral pagan, like the good morally upright citizens, they too the representatives of the outwardly religious, they too, because of their sin, are under the judgment of God. When, indeed, when Paul talks here of sin, of the fact that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, well, John Stott here, he comments that Paul almost seems to personify sin as a cruel tyrant who holds the human race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment sin is on top of us weighs us down and is a crushing burden and to bring his message to a a rousing conclusion paul then uses the word of god the word of god remember that the jews claimed to love he uses the word of god the old testament to hammer home his message Now, these quotations here are are from Ecclesiastes. There's five from the Psalms, and there's one from Isaiah. But from these different quotations, I believe there are three fundamental points here made about sin. First of all, that it affects the heart of us. In the sense that sin, since Adam's first sin, since that first act of rebelling against God, of turning from God's will and from his ways, that since then, sin has become a part of our human nature. Sin is rooted at the very heart of who we are. Adam's sin, that first act of rebellion against God, in some way as it brought sin into our human experience, corrupted the entire human race. So as verse 11 says, there is no one who seeks God. Meaning that naturally as human beings, fallen, sinful human beings, we have no real desire for a relationship with God. Or we might have a, a spiritual side to As Many people today talk in terms like that as a fashionable thing. We might have some kind of religious interest But a real relationship with God. A true relationship with him. In the terms the Bible outlines. That involves making him our number one. That involves putting him in charge of our lives. As sinners. We have no appetite for that. No desire for that. Because the essence of sin you see. Is about us being our own number one. So when we begin to get a desire to yield our lives to God, when we sense that need for him, that need for his guidance, for his lordship, that desire to make him lord of our lives, that we need God, then I want to say to you, that is not natural. That is supernatural. That is a sign that God, by his spirit, is at work in our hearts, that he's drawing us to him. So sin is at the heart of us. It also affects each and every part of us. For in these verses, in these Bible quotations that Paul's gathered together, well, in these verses, just about every part, each and every part of our human being and our human personality is covered there. Mind, body, emotions, conscience, will, they're all there, and they've all been affected by sin. For example... Our thinking, no one understands. Our actions, verse 12, no one does good. Our words, verse 14, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our relationships, in verse 16, ruin and misery mark their ways. All, every part is affected by sin, tainted, twisted and distorted by sin. Now, this particular stream of the the Bible's teaching has uh, has led over time to a development of a doctrine, of a teaching of the total depravity of man. Now, you see, that that title, when it's properly understood, is accurate, but it is sometimes misunderstood. And it's so then rejected. Even at times, Christian faith is rejected when people hear that phrase, total depravity, used. Now, to some extent, I have to say, I can understand that. I understand why, I wish we could come up with a, a better form of words than this. Because you see, when we talk of the total depravity of man, then what we are saying isn't that every human being is as bad, as depraved as they could possibly be. That isn't what we're saying, because that's not obviously not the case. It's not. No, what we are saying is what we've just said. What that means is, That every aspect of our humanity, every part of who we are, our total humanity, to one degree or another, has been tainted, has been affected by sin. So sin affects the heart of us. Sin affects each part of us. Finally, it affects all of us. And Paul makes sure That we get the point here. He makes sure that we understand that sin affects every human being. For twice in these verses we're told that all have gone their own way. Four times we're told that no one is righteous. And another twice that not even one is an exception. Talk about repetition. Do you think he wants us to get the point? I think he does. And a little later... In Romans 3.23, he clarifies again just just what the problem is. The problem is, for us as mankind and for our world, the problem is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the problem. is isn't where we stand in relation to other people. That's not the problem. For some people are very good, some are very bad, and most of us stand somewhere in between. But no, the problem lies... In where we stand in relation to God. For he is perfect. Holy. is glorious in his goodness. Awesome. And he created us with the potential to share in his goodness. But we chose instead to sin. We made that choice. And it is that sin. It's that sin which leaves us short of God's glory. And that leaves us as sinners separate from God, under judgment, with only final judgment and condemnation to come. That's our situation. Whether we are unconcerned, disinterested pagans, whether we are morally upright citizens, or whether we are outwardly religious men and women, that is our situation. Whatever we are, whoever we are, and there is absolutely nothing that we can do about it but you see the god who made us for himself the god who made us because he wants to know us the god who made us because he loves us far far more than either we or anyone else could love us this god did something he did something Something absolutely amazing. And we're going to look at this in more detail next time we look at Romans, but we cannot leave it until then. Because this is what God did for us. Willingly, as an act of love, God in Jesus Christ came to this earth as a man. God became man in Christ. And as a man, he experienced life in every way as we do. He experienced all of life. It's suffering. It's joys. It's challenges. It's temptations. He experienced it all as we do. Save for one thing. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, never sinned. So as God then, he was able to live that perfect life that we could never live. And so on the cross, as a man, he took my place and your place. He hung there for us and gave that perfect life as the payment for all our sin. You see, we are all sinners. We do all need A saviour. And we all have a saviour. If only we are ready to put our trust in the Christ who died for us. If only we are ready by faith to accept all that God has given us in Jesus Christ. How I pray that right now your eyes might be open to see not only the fact that you are a sinner, but far more to see the love and the glory of your Savior. Let's come and praise together. Father, we thank you once more for your incredible grace, for your unbelievable love that we could never deserve, never earn, but that is made available to each one of us today through faith in the Savior you have given. Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we by faith, each one here, may we make him Lord of our lives today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.